0: Hello everyone! Thank you for joining us today. Welcome to the Stanford Center for South Asia podcast, the South Asian Studies podcast. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center. All our podcasts and information about the Center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today I am joined virtually by Ryan Perkins, who is the Curator for South Asian and Islamic Studies at Stanford. We are going to be talking about his work with the collections, as well as his own research. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you, Laloza. It's good uh, to be here.
0: Great to have you. And um, I haven't been at Stanford that long, and uh, we've been um, sheltering in place for most of that time, I think, or maybe half that time. So you and I haven't had that much of a chance to get to know each other. Um, I want to find out so much about you. And let's start off by this quest- with this question. How did you get into the field of South Asia?
1: um good question well i generally tend to start i always had an interest in languages my first persian word i learned i think i was in the first grade and my best friend was from iran and he taught me a word and told me i could not tell his mom this word um (laughs) and and then in high school i studied spanish and japanese uh when i went off to college at the end of my second year i felt that i needed to kind of get away from everything as familiar with as possible i had a friend who was on the same dorm floor who had spent about four or five years on a ship going around the world and he put a map of india on my wall and started telling me stories and i applied for a program and then i spent the next uh, almost a year and a half uh it was in pakistan india nepal so when i was 20 and then 21 and worked with afghan Iranian refugees um, in Delhi when I was over there and did a lot of traveling. And so when I went, I had no knowledge of really of South Asia at all. I remember when I first arrived in Lahore and not really knowing any Urdu words and by the end of my time in Pakistan could at least, you know, communicate in Urdu and then studied uh, Dari when I was there in Delhi working with refugees. So that was kind of my first initial exposure to South Asia. And when I then came back and and finished up school, um, I then, let's see, that was back quite a long time ago now. Um, So I had that interest. And then I ended up actually, I taught third grade for a year after I graduated from college. And that was when I realized that I really needed more intellectual stimulation. and so I ended up going out to Columbia University for a couple of conferences when I met a lot of people in the field and then started applying to to programs and was really interested in uh in Pashtu and Afghanistan. And Penn had just restarted their their Pashtu program and so it worked out for me to enter into their uh MAPHE program in South Asian studies.
0: So I don't want you to out yourself uh, in terms of your age, but I'm very curious when roughly this was because I, I'm just curious about the politics at the time of being in Pakistan and then also your interest in Afghanistan. Yeah.
1: So my first time in Pakistan was 96. So September 96 is when I arrived. And shortly after I arrived is when the Taliban took over or marched on the Kabul. And I remember the front page of the paper where Najibullah was uh, hanging from a pylon there in Kabul. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so ninety six, ninety seven was my first time in in Pakistan and then in, in India and Nepal.
0: So uh, this must have been a, a very um, exciting but also overwhelming time for you in South Asia. For me, the 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 um, the kind of career path into the library doesn't follow <laughs> entirely. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> yeah, so um, so after so I. So I completed my PhD in 2011 from the University of Pennsylvania, focusing on the late colonial period. And after I did that, I, had, I did a postdoc at the University of Chicago in their South Asian language and Civilizations. And that department is a Mellon postdoc, and so I was teaching uh, classes there. And then after that postdoc, I was then went to Oxford for a year where I was doing another postdoc. And Rosalind O'Hanlon, or Polly O'Hanlon, she was on sabbatical for the year, so I was kind of filling in while she was gone. And then after that I have I have two kids who are up in Oregon. And so I just wanted to be in the same city as my kids. So I moved back to Portland. First time I moved anywhere without a job and was really trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um and it was during that time that um I got another postdoc, UCLA, uh working with Niall Green, but this position in the library. So Christian Nobetsky, who's now at University of Washington, he had started teaching at Penn when I first started as a grad student. And he knew I was looking around for other positions. And so he gave me a call and he said, hey, did you hear about this position at Stanford in the library? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, well, what do you think about it? Do you want to apply? And I said, sure. And so I applied for the position at Stanford, came out for the interview, and to me, it seemed like a long time that I hadn't heard back from them, and so I basically had signed the contract for UCLA, was about to move down to LA, and then I got the call from Stanford offering me the position, and uh, many of you listening to this know about the the job situation, the academic job market, and so um, I was you know, very excited about the position. I'd never worked in a library before, but it was also the first Time that Stanford was hiring someone in this position, so it was a real opportunity to really build something from almost nothing here. Um, And so then I came here almost five years ago, so September of two thousand
0: fifteen. Such a great story, and I I, um, the South Asia bibliographers that I've worked with in my uh, both at the University of London and and at the University of Wisconsin. You know, nobody has all the knowledge, right? And people do phenomenal but they have to farm out so much in terms of just cataloging different scripts. Uh, and, but you, it seems like with you, they kind of hit the jackpot a little bit because you have such an incredibly broad range of languages already.
1: Um, I don't know if I can say to hit the jackpot or not, but um, but I'm happy, <laughs> happy to be here and happy to have landed up in this position. I had never really thought of this. I never, you know, many times we think when we're younger, like where we imagine ourselves and this wasn't really a path that I had uh, really considered or even thought of as, as a possibility. And yet when I end up in this position, it's it's really, it's been a perfect fit for me to allow me to kind of engage in, in a much broader level with many of the different trends, but also considering a lot of the work I was doing in my own research was with 19th century materials and visiting different libraries and digitizing materials. One realized the importance that of really preserving and finding materials, uh, especially in South Asia, that are disintegrating as we speak. And so, entering into this position um, and having some language background, and and also at universities like Stanford, I think the libraries are much more interested in having people who have the the academic background and the research expertise to work with faculty and grad students. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've really tried to keep me away from the cataloging. So one of the things that I do appreciate it. Stanford, is those of us who are curators, don't have to end up spending a lot of our time doing the cataloging, which is a very specific skill set.
0: Right, right. So it allows
1: us time to um, to work in other areas.
0: Well, that's that's great, and um, I I hear you on on the kind of the importance of those support roles. And I'll, I'll get back to you about uh, the project you're working on. Uh, but I just wanted to make a comment, I guess, on how you speak of your trajectory is somewhat, um, I don't want to say haphazard, something between haphazard and serendipitous, also being motivated by uh, being a a parent uh, and things kind of coming your way. And I I wonder if there's, um, there's not enough recognition of that, that for us as academics, I think in grad school, it's, um, the tenure track is kind of held up as the thing that we should go for. Uh, And for many of us, it, it doesn't work for me. It was a very conscious decision not to follow that. But then the oh. are not always apparent. Uh, and um, I can be seen as kind of, well, okay, we'll do that then. And for me, it really wasn't. I Where I am is exactly where I want to be. And it sounds like you're in that place now as well, that you're just incredibly um, fulfilled in what you do, even though it happened somewhat randomly.
1: Yeah, and I think that i mean especially in grad school really the only trajectory and at least uh, not until i started writing up like everyone from the department was getting jobs and the job market was doing really well when i started writing up was when the kind of the bottom fell out and jobs really dried up and the training that one at least that i received in grad school was really only preparing one for you know a tenure track position Um, and so it wasn't really Something that we, you know, that was in our in the realm of possibilities for us uh, That being said, I think now a lot more grad students are looking into, you know, position libraries I know I have a couple of colleagues who recently finished their PhDs and uh, have taken positions. So one of them uh, is now the librarian at Princeton. She finished her PhD at Chicago um, Ellen Ambersoni, um and uh, Gautam Ghosh, who finished his PhD at UChicago as well, and he's now at the library at Emory. So I know that there is a lot more awareness of this, and I think this um, younger generation of students coming out um, see kind of the realm of possibilities within that, that in the library, um, you can, in a sense, do things that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily have the time or the scope or the support to do, um, and not that... And so I think they all play together in a really uh, mutually beneficial, beneficial role, um, which I've really enjoyed and appreciated. And I think you know coming into contact with some collections that you that you're aware that if you don't do anything about these collections, they're going to be gone. And that part of the job and the role is is that we as humans have produced a lot over you know since we've been around, and that. Part of keeping a sense of who we are as humans is preserving these materials so for future generations that we don't lose sight of, of what we've gone through and what we have produced and preserving this material not only for scholars today and grad students today, but for those who will, who will come down the road.
0: Um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about the kind of politics of curating. But um, before that, before I kind of forget, um, you mentioned a ton of postdocs. You clearly are very successful in uh, in being a researcher. So tell us what you work on and or uh, what you have worked on. And you mentioned just now that you do get time um, or at least some time uh, to, to work on um, different projects. So start start off by telling us about your research.
1: Um, yeah, so I have a couple of different research trajectories. Uh, the the main one um, in, is on late colonial India and the idea of the Islamic public. And the writer who spent a lot of time working on, Abdul Halim Sharar, who wrote Guza uh, Lucknow, and was the first writer of historical novels in Urdu, and lived from 1860 to 1926, and he published a periodical from 1887 until he passed away um, with a few years break in between. And so he was this really interesting figure. Um, and most of what we know, or a lot of what we know, are the ideas of this kind of past, Nawabi Lucknow. Much of it does come from his writings on this, on this path that he never actually lived in. But he did grow up in Matiburj, uh, which was the exiled court of Wajid Ali Shah when he did leave Lucknow. And so he uses the word, um, the English word public in Urdu. And so the word public comes into usage in Indian languages in the 1880s. And he actually uses the word islami public. And so I've taken this to look at, you know, what is the idea of the Islamic public and looking at the Islamic public as an emotional community of belonging. And through his writings and other writings, trying to uh, create a shared emotional response and through that shared emotional response, to, um, in a sense, to try to bring about the idea of this Islamic public in, into reality. So that's uh, one project in looking at, you know, the Islamic public as this Islamic city, and then looking at the role of literature. Uh, and then I also work with Pashtu materials, uh, particularly in relationship to the kind of creation of Pashtu as a literary language, and a lot of the translation efforts from Persian into Pashtu. And from around 1700 or the end of the 17th century and then uh, throughout the 18th century and then kind of the dispersion and the spread of manuscripts, uh, of Pascha manuscripts throughout South Asia and trying to put together a clearer picture of of these networks of circulation. Um, And then recently actually just co-edited a special journal issue with Andrew Amstutz and David Boyk uh, in South Asia, Journal of South Asian Studies. Uh, where we looked at uh, the role of libraries and scholarship, that oftentimes libraries are locations where people carry out research, but they themselves are, have not been a, a large focus of research themselves. And so that journal issue was focused on uh, libraries in South Asia, um, and so we had an introduction for that and then put a piece together on libraries in the digital age, so looking at Drawing comparisons between the spread of lithographic print technology in South Asia and then kind of the spread of digital technology and some comparisons and challenges that we face today and, and making sure that these digitization efforts are sustainable. And while the Internet seemed to promise free and open access to all, it's not always equal access to all. And so we can create these archives that maybe we have access to at universities that have the money to pay for these, but most people don't have access to these. So looking into these types of questions as well to try to create uh, a more democratic environment so that knowledge is not just available to those who have institutional affiliations who have the money to afford it.
0: Right. I know that Andrew's doing really phenomenal work building up this South Asia collection at his university.
1: Mm, yeah.
0: And it's, yeah, it's so important. And I think when you're at a place where there is a solid library and you have, as you say, that that level of access, you don't realize what it's like for people who do not, who are always hitting that wall.
1: Yeah, yeah. And a lot of it's really about patronage. Um, I mean, even in terms of poets and um, during the Mughal period and then uh, in the late 19th century, a lot of it was, you know about patronage and if you find patronage you can continue to function and so I think many of those same trends carry over today that if you have the patronage of the university you can continue to produce work and without that patronage there's a lot more obstacles in your way.
0: I love that he worked on Abdul Halim Sharer. I, 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 his work really guided me in some ways through yeah. on, uh, on Tawaif culture in, in North India and um, yeah it always made me nostalgic. Of course, nostalgic for a, a time and a place that was never mine to begin with. But it's, it's just <laughs> yeah. And
1: and I spent time in Lucknow as well, when studied was doing Lucknow. And I remember this one particular experience where I was in um, in the city, and uh, a rickshaw driver. Um, I think I just gotten dropped off, and we started. We were talking, and he heard about my interest in and in past Lucknow and. So he started reciting this uh, the shed uh-huh. in this beautiful Urdu. Uh-huh. Um, and as he's doing this, you know, this police comes over and with his, you know, starts you know, hitting his rickshaw and like, you know, hitting him to, to move on. And so I thought here are these two worlds coming together, this like kind of this past Luck like Now the Shera talks about where even, you know, the rickshaw drivers recite beautiful Urdu poetry. Uh, but then this modern <laughs> where the police comes and like doesn't allow it to happen and tells them to move on so
0: <laughs> it's a great story i i I'm guessing this is pre iphone days it would it would make for a nice uh
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah
0: I know you're doing great work in the library with different projects um i've been fortunate to see some of that in action uh tell us tell us some about something about the main project you're working on within the context of the Stanford Library.
1: Yeah, so um, a couple projects. So one of them, as many of you are probably familiar with, the 1947 Partition Archive. It's a group um, started by Gunita Singh Bala, um, who had come from astrophysics and then left that field to start um, helping to record interviews of survivors of partition. And so far, I think they've collected about 9,400 interviews. And so we've been partnering with them to try to make these interviews available for streaming online, and so in 2017 we did a, a pilot project where we created a spotlight exhibit and uploaded uh, close to 50 of these interviews, and um, are you know been applying for grants to try to get funding to put up more of these interviews online, um, and then also working with I'm going to Chatterjee who's at Berkeley and uh, materials related to conflict in South Asia. So some of these are materials are related to to human rights, whether it's court cases um, from Punjab from Gujarat um, or in things in relationship to Kashmir and what's been going on there so those are a couple of really exciting uh, you know uh, digital based projects um and then in terms of collections um I had brought in, let's see, a collection from Hyderabad of about 10,000 Urdu um, books from a collector there that we had then had catalogued. So a lot of times people think about, okay, you find a collection, and you buy it, and that's great, then everyone has access to it. But actually, the most of the work comes into then processing and cataloging the collection. So finding a collection is one thing, but then finding the funds to actually... Catalog the collection ends up costing usually much more than the actual purchase of the collection So we're able to work with DK to take get that collection catalog, which I think has now been completed uh, And Then um, Aslam Mahmood who had passed away, I think a couple of years ago. He was from Lucknow and he was a bibliophile So we had also gotten a lot of materials from him We had then actually sent over to Karachi to be processed and cataloged there and just found out that that collection has just been um, completely catalogued, so they should be shipping that over to us in the near future. Um, and then there's another project working with uh, uh, a book dealer in Pakistan, Usman Rizvi who had worked with Alay Shahab Ahmed uh, when he was at Harvard before he had passed away to really put together a lot of amazing materials. And so there was a collection of about 10,000 uh, books, a lot of them from the 19th century, lithographic materials, and so we were working with them to digitize that collection um, and then to purchase that as an e-resource for the library. Um, so these are a couple or a few of the, of the ongoing projects. There's another, there's a collection of uh, manuscripts up in Peshawah, uh over 1200 manuscripts from the 16th and 19th century that have been, made a trip out to Pakistan in late or in early March um, and met with some people there to try to uh, get all the get everything in place to see if we can do something to preserve and digitize that collection as well.
0: So walk me through this a little bit. Um, there's a there's a person in Peshawar who has an amazing collection of hundreds yeah. of thousands of manuscripts. Do they contact you? Do you contact them? Is there kind of a bidding war? What does that look like?
1: Yeah. So with this collection in particular, so Usman, I've been working now with Usman does he for about three years, and he has a bookshop right outside uh, Dutta Ganjbak's uh, Hejuwiti Shrine there in Lahore. And so I've been working with him some to acquire materials for the library, and I had mentioned to him, you know, if you find manuscripts, and I'm particularly interested in Pashtu manuscripts, um, having worked with um, particular stories of Yusuf Suleikha and the circulation of those manuscripts in Pashto. And so I had kind of put that on his radar, and he has connections throughout Pakistan. And so somehow he got in touch with them, and I was able to make a trip out to Peshawar last year to to actually visit the collection in person, meet with them. Uh, The Pashtu materials are about four, Pashtu manuscripts are about 400, and those are from uh, the Sufi peer Kakahel. And so those have been kind of passed on the family, the Persian, the Arabic, and the Urdu manuscripts um, are separate from the Pashtu manuscripts, but they're trying to sell them together. And the owner of that collection, has you know, spent his life collecting manuscripts, um, taking trips, uh, many of them he's gotten from let's say Afghan refugees who were fleeing Afghanistan and maybe had some manuscripts with them that they knew were of value and brought them with them. So it really varies in terms of where these come from and the sellers are very determined to sell the collection. And, you know, one of the biggest concerns is that if they get dispersed and end up just kind of dispersed in private hands in various places, they're not going to get digitized and they'll almost be as good as as lost. And so if we can find a way to actually keep the collection together, digitize it um, and then make it uh, openly accessible online, then, you know, it's it's it'd be an amazing resource.
0: It's really incredible work that you do. And I am. I, I know from work with other um, librarians that sometimes you get given, you know, people make donations or sometimes the, the um, children or grandchildren of people who have collections make a donation to the library. And, and it's it's hard mm-hmm. sometimes to figure out what's valuable, what's not. Um, yeah. So it's uh, it must be very rewarding then to also work with people who are collectors and then to try and keep it together and really continue the work that was already started.
1: Yeah, and I think I mean one of the things now is a lot of these collectors are nearing the end of their lives, and so you know I think of another collection in Gujranwala, and the owner is trying to figure out what he's going to do with his collection because his children aren't interested in it, um, and so it's also you know a real challenge because I mean for example, at Gujanwala, it's it's not um, let's say an urban center that most people go travel to uh, when they go to Karachi or Lahore and so the question is is how do we you know how do we keep these materials preserved in a way that people can still use them and I think there's been other examples so um, Jim Nye has has done a lot of work in this regard and we can think of the Mushokwaja Trust now which is a library there in Karachi so with the late Mushokwaja and his collection which there were different libraries that went in together to purchase the collection and were able to keep it in Pakistan, and then work on digitizing the more rare materials in the British Library through the Endangered Archives Grant as well. The uh, Quaid Library they were able to digitize some of their materials for that project as well. So there's always like more work to be done, and I think now with the coronavirus um, and the inability of of really international travel at this time, especially from America, it makes it all the more reason to to work harder and trying to preserve them through digitization and working together with other groups to, to make this happen.
0: It's, uh, it's very inspiring. Um, tell me more about, I alluded to this earlier, what I would call the politics of curating, especially in a, um, how shall I put this, a landscape where knowledge is not necessarily um, valued as much as we, mm the academy might like, Um, preservation of knowledge might not be considered very important. How do you negotiate that? And how do you see your role kind of navigating the politics of that? Because I imagine it is political in this current moment.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think just the act of, so if we think about many of the the voices in the world that have really been silenced that have not been the majoritarian voices, and we have that going on in the U.S. Uh, and through the ability to, you know, make phone recordings, we're much more aware of these things, and that itself is an act of preserving, which itself is a political act that, you know, no, these voices are important, and we're not going to let them be silenced. And so I see a lot of similarities and. Comparison that we can draw with the context in South Asia. If we take for example the situation in Kashmir um, and what the Indian state has has been doing there and part of the you know the act of let's say recording and preserving these voices and these materials also that these voices are, are not forgotten and maybe the political climate right now is not as welcome to that um, to kind of hearing and you know, underscoring, or at least bringing about policy changes um, in accordance with what would be the humane thing for those who have been oppressed. But that doesn't mean that it is not, I think it makes it even all the more important because particularly in this political climate, if we don't do that, then um, I think many of these broader forces or state forces will do whatever they can to try to make these voices disappear. And when we lose those voices, we also lose a sense of who we are as humans and so I think part of this is us striving to be more fully human in the best sense of the term and part of that means you know drawing from our rich history and our rich traditions, but also um, highlighting and listening to voices that have otherwise not um that have been silenced by whether it's state forces, whether it's you know, different fundamentalisms or whatever those, um, whatever that may be.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, I'm uh, just uh, inspired by your work, and uh, I'm in awe of it. And I, I know that you applied for some funding to continue some of the very important projects we've got going on. And I wish you um, all the best with that. Obviously, we in the Center for South Asia fully support all these endeavors. Uh, because the library is uh, kind of where it's at. Uh, you're doing great work and it's been really fun and uh, also um, enlightening uh, getting to know you a little bit. and I'm sure our audience will fully agree with me. So thank you so much for um, spending yeah, this-
1: Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. And really, you know, I really appreciate the work at the Center for South Asia. I think I came on as part of this big expansion at Stanford with South Asia as, you know, a more focused area of scholarly interest at the university and so it's been really exciting to be a part of this burgeoning, burgeoning community um, with you know great people like you and Jisha who's been you know director of the center right now and other faculty members and grad students so it's, it's you know it's, uh, I feel very uh, very fortunate to be where I am and to be working with with people like you so thank you very much
0: Thank you. We are the fortunate ones. To our audience members, uh, yes, the South Asia community uh, at Stanford, we're always growing. We're trying to do more, bringing in new initiatives. Uh, All the information is at at SouthAsia.Stanford.edu. You're also absolutely welcome to email us with suggestions or questions or interact with us. We are on Twitter, we are on on Instagram, we are on Facebook uh, and we are also working on getting our podcasts up on the um, official and more widely available podcast channels. So uh, watch this space, but for now uh, I will sign off. Thank you so much. I've been Lalita Duperan and I will see you all again soon.